hear him come in. I didn't hear anything. And all of a sudden, there was someone sitting in my door, the bedroom door. And I looked up. Welcome to Mr. Polis, where we gather, talk about crimes, conspiracies, mysteries, and all that jazz. I'm a true crime fan. If you're a fangirl or a fanboy obsessing over true crime, come on in. I was waiting for you. Hi everyone, I'm so excited to share this one. So this case remained unsolved for more than 40 years and has been solved very recently. 40 years is a long time, but I'm glad victims and their families have the answers. The Golden State Killer, the Vesalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker. Different names with definite match to one person. Almost five decades long investigation into at least 13 murders, more than 50 rapes and over 150 burglaries in California between the years of 1973 to 1986. This man, a devil incarnation, walked the residential streets of California, lurking in the shadows of darkness, festing his eyes on unsuspecting victims going on with their lives, not knowing what is to come into the comforts of their home. He would only choose the silent, peaceful neighborhood with single-story homes. Often homes of single women, very convenient for his sadistic, perverted purposes. He would later move on to terrorizing couples, dying and gagging the men and the children in the house, while he raped victim in the other room. As the year progressed, he became more and more diabolical and merciless in his crimes, battering his victims to death. He left no fingerprints, wore ski masks, blocked victims' vision by flashing lights at their faces. He always had shoelace in his pockets to bound his victims and would gag them with torn clothes. He would ransack the house, would break things and often stay hours in the house helping himself with the food in the kitchen. He always parked his car few blocks away because he knew how patrolling worked. He covered the distance to victim's house on foot or on stolen bicycle, always careful to stay out of the street. He was updated with police investigations. He knew how police would approach the crime scene, so made sure to leave no evidence behind. But in 70s and 80s, DNA was unheard of. This unknown assailant almost got away if it wasn't for DNA. He left behind in these crime scenes abundantly. He thought he was the smartest. He never thought his body fluid will come back in future and serve him back. DNA is collected in rape kits and murder scenes was never a match to anyone in FBI data. This person had never been arrested and had a clean criminal record. However, investigators had breakthrough when DNA was compared to other unsolved crimes. They found out that it belonged to the same person in series of crimes in different places between 1973 to 1986 in California. It was someone living in California. Now they had DNA. They knew it came from one person who has no criminal records. So they approached it in an unusual way. They made a fake profile in the genealogy website and put his DNA in it hoping it will find a match to the person, which was very far-fetched, but they were hopeful to at least find a distant relative. 
what are these genealogy websites so these websites help find long lost family members and help their client know about their ancestry through the dna that is submitted in 2018 within 24 hours of submission of dna to gedmatch.com they found a match to several people five matches were of men living in california they narrowed it down further to his fourth cousin the investigation along with genealogists were able to construct a family tree and narrow it down to two suspects one was ruled out by dna testing and they were left with the main suspect now after 45 years the investigators had a face and a name it was 72 year old joseph james d'angelo an ex police officer a family man who had no troubles with the law a grandfather who would take his grandkids to trick and treat in the neighborhood who seemed like a frail old man living alone in his house in Citrus Heights, Sacramento, California, area where he had raped four women before buying his house in 1981. The investigators had the match, but they didn't want it to alarm him, so they took samples from his door handles of his cars and from the used tissue found in his garbage can. It was a match and confirmation to what they already knew. Soon enough, they barged into his door to make the arrest while he was in comforts of his house, cooking himself a nice roast, unaware of turn of events of that fine, seemingly normal day, just like all his innocent, unsuspecting victims. On April 24, 2018, Joseph James D'Angelo was arrested and was charged with eight counts of first-degree murder, and later four additional counts of first-degree murder was added. He raped more than 50 women and burglarized over 120 houses. He called his victims threatening them and the local police department taunting that they will never catch him. D'Angelo straight up offered a confession but didn't take the blame directly. He blamed his inner personality, Jerry, that forced him to commit these crimes. The series of crimes suddenly stopped because D'Angelo was able to overpower Jerry as he claims. Soon after the arrest when he was alone in the interrogation room he started talking to himself and said I didn't have the strength to push him out he made me he went with me it was like in my head i mean he is a part of me i didn't want to do those things i pushed jerry out and had a happy life i did all those things i destroyed all their lives so now i got to pay the price who is this old man Joseph James D'Angelo was born on November 8, 1947 in Bath, New York, to Kathleen D. Groth and Joseph James D'Angelo Sr. His father was US Army sergeant that required him and his family to move to different places. He also served in World War II. D'Angelo was the oldest and had two younger sisters and a younger brother. Though the family moved around a lot, They always had roof over their head and food on their plate. By no means it was a dysfunctional family, nor there were any kind of abuses. Maybe yes, parents used physical method to discipline the kids, but that was very common then. That was a different time. Now we have fragile kids. Moving on, when he was about 10, his family was stationed in West Germany. It is reported that he witnessed his younger sister being raped by two airmen in a warehouse. Nothing much is known about the incident or if 
any impact that had on D'Angelo because moving on in life, he would go on to rape more than 50 women in his lifetime. His parents divorced and his mother remarried Jack Bassanko. The family moved to Auburn, California. His mother Kathleen worked at a diner and his stepfather worked as a welder for a crane company. For a year in 1959-1960, he attended Mills Junior High School in Rancho Cordova, California. He attended Folsom High School between the years of 1961 to 1963. In 1964, he received his GED and same year, at the age of 17, he enlisted in U.S. Navy and served 22 months during the Vietnam War as a damage control man. So the person with this rank is responsible for maintenance, plumbing, welding, just making sure everything is watertight in the ship. He did lose a finger during his service. He gets back home and attends Sierra College in Rockland, California and earns his associate degree in police science. For a very brief period, he was engaged to one of his classmates, Bonnie Jean Colwell, in 1970, and they broke off. She moves on to marry someone else. This is significant because during one of the rape attacks, he kept saying, I hate you, Bonnie. In 1971, he goes to university and earns his bachelor's degree in criminal justice, completes his post-graduation and further police training and also was a rookie with Roosevelt Police Department. So this guy had good things going on in his life. There was a clear career path in his life that he worked on very early on life. A person looking at him will have an impression that this guy has his shit together in polite terms has his affairs in order at the age of 24. But beware, Satan comes in disguise or in flesh of an ex. He joined Exeter Police Department and worked in burglary unit between May 1973 to August 1976. What an irony. And I say that because he also started his dark career as a burglar during this time. In November 1973, at the age of 28, he gets married to a divorce lawyer, Sharon Marie Huddle, in Auburn, California. In these three years, while he was working with Exeter PD, there were about 120 crimes committed in the area. The pattern or modus operandi pointed to one assailant, and he was nicknamed Vesalia Ransacco. In these crimes, he would break into single-family homes and ransack, destroy interiors, break things, go through things, and would then steal something small or insignificant of lower value, and completely ignore money or higher-value things at plain sight. Those days, people used to have cash at home, and now we don't even keep cash in wallets, so that was a different time. So it was something like a trophy or a souvenir, something I believe he would look at Go down the memory lane, cherish the moments when he was at some stranger's house, pulling their house apart. If that's not creepy, I don't know what it is. He would wear gloves so there were no fingerprints found. He would cut window screens to enter. He placed dishes, a bottle just in front of the house door. So that if someone comes back, it gets knocked and he is alerted. He always made sure to have multiple exit points through windows, back doors and garage etc. After 18 months of spree, his crime started getting darker. You know how these career criminals are. They want to get promoted into more gruesome crimes as they progress. It gives boost to their confidence. 
Oh my, I didn't get caught. I should do something more terrible next time. Is what I'm thinking. On September 11, 1975, D'Angelo breaks into the house of 45-year-old journalist Claude Snailing. Just six days before this date, Snailing chased someone around, someone loitering around his 16-year-old daughter's window at around 10 p.m. On night of 11 September, Snailing woke up to some strange noise and he was confronted by a ski mask intruder trying to abduct his 16-year-old daughter. In an attempt to save his daughter, he was shot twice and he died later. The assailant fled the scene on a bicycle. Someone comes to your house and kills you. That's a big deal. So police started stakeouts near these areas where break-ins were happening. But break-ins continued because D'Angelo was working with the PD but also against them. Nothing came out of the investigation. They had between 21 to 37 suspects and ballistic matched a .38 Morocco revolver, but that was again stolen, so a dead end. One of D'Angelo's colleagues later said that he would come to the investigate the crime scene with his fellow officers and never anyone suspected that. Then in late 1975, it stopped. It stopped because D'Angelo moved to Auburn, which is three hours drive from Exeter, and started working with the local police department there. He then served in Auburn PD from 1976 to July 1979. Quickly enough, he started terrorizing the area as East Area Rapist and was active between June 1976 to July 1979. He was just a burglar in Exeter and now he has started his new site criminal as a rapist at the age of 28. The core MO, the modus operandi, was same, which was breaking into the houses of middle class neighborhood looking for women living alone in single story houses as it's easier to break in and escape quickly. He used to make sure that there were multiple exit options. Also, he was a police officer, so if someone sees police officers strolling on the street looking around, they wouldn't find it alarming. So D'Angelo would look through the windows, walk in the yard, look around before selecting the house and the victim. He would often phone call his future victims in advance to learn about their routine. I'm assuming through phone books. Or maybe he befriended his victims. If you're a young woman, why wouldn't you want to be friends with a young police officer? That uniform is a dream boat you want to get on. Just exception to this one, ladies and gents. You don't want to get on this one. The first known victim of East Area Rapist and Serial Murderer recalls her encounter with D'Angelo 40 years ago on the night of June 18, 1976. I didn't hear him come in, I didn't hear anything, and all of a sudden there was someone standing in my door, the bedroom door, and I looked up and I thought it was my dad at first, you know, because he, you know, he drives weird hours and he might have come in early because it was early in the morning. And nope, it wasn't my dad. So um, he came in, he had a ski mask on and jumped on the bed and had a knife. And I don't, I don't exactly remember what he said, but something to the effect of, you know, don't scream, don't, you know, whatever. And tied my hands behind my back. He, he, he put a cut over my eye, over my eye, but I didn't even realize that I had been cut. 
And um, I guess part of what he said is that, you know, I don't, even, I don't know what he said. I just remember feeling extremely threatened. After it was all over and done with, he went through the stuff in the room, took money out of my purse, took um, some coin books and stuff that I had, and took a piece of jewelry. I don't, it, it, it was just something that I had just gotten. I don't even know what it was. Um, and I laid in the bed for, it seemed like forever, forever. Because I'd never heard, the, I was waiting for the door to close. And I never heard the door close. So I was afraid to get up to, you know, to see. And finally I said, okay, this, this is do or die. On early hours of October 5th, 1976, D'Angelo broke into the house of Jane Carson and her husband in Citrus Heights. It was 6.30 a.m. and her husband had just left for work, leaving behind Jane and the three-year-old son. Jane was in her bedroom with her son laid next to her when she heard garage door close and saw a light in the hallway, then heard footsteps as if someone is running rapidly towards her room, and then she was confronted by this monster. He pounced on them and threw shoelaces. Shut up, shut up, shut up, or I'll kill you. D'Angelo repeated as he scraped the knife across her chest, leaving behind drops of blood. I just want your money, he said. Jane pled not to hurt them. He blindfolded both, gagged them, and tied them with shoe ties. He raped her and went to the kitchen and started rattling pans and pots. After some time, when Jane realized that intruder had left, she untied herself and her son, crawled out to the lawn and screamed for help. Jane noticed that he always spoke through clenched teeth as if trying to disguise his voice. So this is the audio clip of D'Angelo I was able to find in one of the articles. It's very eerie and very, very scary. If you don't want to listen to this, please skip seven or eight uh, seconds ahead. By mid-October, law enforcement publicly announced their hunt for East Area Rapist and offered first reward $2,500 for any information that will lead to his arrest. On January 18, 1977, a housewife was raped in her home while her husband was away. It shows how closely D'Angelo watched his victim and how well-versed he was about all his victims' routines. February 7, 1977, he shot an 18-year-old guy after he was caught sneaking around in the neighborhood, possibly trying to break into one of his victim's house. On night of March 18, 16-year-old high schooler walked home to pick up her clothes for her overnight stay at her girlfriend's house. Her family was away. At 10.45 p.m., soon she entered her house, D'Angelo came out of one of the back rooms wearing a ski mask. She said he was either there to burglarize or was waiting in the dark. He tied and gagged her before raping her. He remained in the house until 11.40 p.m. and escaped through the back door when victim's friend came to, came to check on her. 
On April 18th, a 19-year-old woman was raped in her house between the hours of 2.30 to 4 a.m. On May 5th past midnight, a couple was confronted in the driveway of their house. At gunpoint, he ordered them to get inside the house where he died and raped the woman and was at the residence until 2.15 a.m. in the morning. Just 48 hours prior to this attack on 3rd May, he broke into another couple's house in Glenbrook, just five miles away. He raped the woman and walked around the house for two hours without waking up two young children in the house. During this entire length of his spree, he attacked both alone women and couples, MO being the same, blindfolding, gagging and tying, also ransacking the house and stealing little keepsakes. Then on October 21st, 1977, D'Angelo broke into a couple's house did his thing and left the couple to be untied by their two young children the following morning. October 29, 1977, D'Angelo walked up to the couple's bed and woke them up. He kept repeating he will blow their head if they didn't do as he said. He asked the wife to tie her husband and then tied her hands and took her to the living room. He raped her, then he stood up while standing over her head, he said. I'm sorry, mom. Mom, mommy, please help me. I don't want to do this, mommy. Then he began to sob and hyperventilate. He raped her for the second time and started crying again. Mommy, I don't want to do this. Someone please help me. Remember I spoke about Jerry, his alter ego that he said made him do things? I'm not suggesting anything. This person is evil. I'm just reminding you guys of that incident after he was arrested. November 10th, 1977, he broke into the house of 56-year-old woman and her 13-year-old daughter. He raped her daughter and she was D'Angelo's youngest victim. There were many rapes in between the dates I'm picking to talk about, so I only selected few, not that others are insignificant. It's because there are very limited information about those. And he has raped more than 50 women and young women during those times. So that's a lot of cases. More he progressed in his part, he got more careless. Sometimes he would spend hours in his victim's house, ransacking the house, going through the things, eating food in the kitchen. Sometimes even cooking himself a meal and stealing personal objects, cash, gun. He always kept on foot and he kept out of streets. February 2nd of 1978, at 9.20 p.m., a young couple, 21-year-old Brian Majori and his 20-year-old wife, Katie, who had been married for two years, were walking their dog in their neighborhood in Rancho Cordova, same area D'Angelo went to high school in. This was a nice middle-class area. Past few weeks, the neighborhood was terrorized by the person whom they suspected to be the East Area Rapist, due to several reports of break-in, burglaries, rape, and hung-up calls. Brian and Katie walked past a tree under which stood a dark figure in the shadow. They didn't notice him until pointed out by a night jogger. Something happened in that moment. A witness 10-year-old boy heard some commotion in his backyard. When he walked up to his window to inspect, he saw the couple, Katie and Brian, being chased by a man. Boy saw the suspect shot fire at Brian and then chase Katie. He shot her in the 
in her head and jumped over a body to escape, leaving behind his bloody shoe prints. A blue shoelace was also found near the victims. Earlier this year, on June 29, 2020, D'Angelo pled guilty to these murders. After raping his last known victim in Danville on July 5, 1979, same month he was arrested for shoplifting a hammer and a dog repellent. He was sentenced to six months probation and was fired that October. Few weeks after that, the chief of PD noticed a prowler around his residence. He suspected it was vengeful D'Angelo, but never investigated it. As East Area Rapist, he was active in general area around in close proximity to his home and work, area very close to Auburn and Sacramento. But after he was fired in 1979 from the police department, he began his brutal killing spree far away from his new home in Citrus Heights, in suburbs of Sacramento. The couple bought the house on April of 1981. Joseph James D'Angelo was active in Santa Barbara and Orange County between October 1979 until May of 1986. He came to be known as the original Night Stalker. This area of his interest was more than 400 miles away from his home. His first attempt to murder was on October 1st of 1979 in Galita, Santa Barbara County. Time was 2 a.m. when couple were woken up by the intruder who stood by their bedside, flashing light at them. He then threw shoelaces at them and asked women to tie the man. Then he tied the woman himself. He kept threatening them in his teeth-clenched voice. I gotta have money. Where's the money? Don't look at me, motherfucker. I'll kill you, motherfuckers. He goes and starts ransacking the house. After a while, he comes back and asks, where is the money? Woman tells him that her purse is by the kitchen sink. He orders her to come along and show him. He never did all these for money. His only motives were to rape and ransack the place. So he was kind of preparing to rape her while man was tied in the bedroom. She moved and knocked down something. Then he clutched her mouth which made her scream. Hearing this, man thought she was being killed, so he hopped out of the bed and headed to the sliding door. He managed to get out and threw himself into the bushes and hid in the shadows. D'Angelo heard this, he came with his flashlight trying to locate the man in the backyard, leaving the woman unattended. While he was looking in the bushes, she managed to untie her ankles and run out of the door naked and jumped in front of a passing car, screaming for help. D'Angelo tried to flee on his stolen bicycle that he often used, but because everyone was alerted, he ditched it and ran on foot to keep off the streets. Obviously, he was masked, but couple were able to give, give description of his clothings. After the blushed-up attack on the couple in Golita, there were no attacks, no prowling, no break-ins for a period of two months. And then in last week of December, he comes back to Golita. He starts stalking the street in shadows of night looking for his victim and he has already selected the house. On December 13, 1979, he parked his car far away and walked through the fields to the backyard of couple's house. 
He knew both were doctors and he had been watching them. He broke into the empty condo next to couples and waited till their lights were out and they went deep into sleep. He jumped the fence and opened the slide doors to their house. He started tapping and kicking the bed, whispering and hissing through his clenched teeth. No shoelaces, he got a white twine to tie his victims this time. He used shoelaces as East Area Rapist and now he has changed areas to Southern California and to some degree his MO. I think this is why he started using twines and later on he would cut and take back the twines. He was playing safe, trying to keep East Area Rapist and original Night Stalker apart. He asked the woman to tie the husband's wrist, then he ties her while the couple was sitting on their bed and D'Angelo was tying husband's feet that he usually did before raping the woman. The husband lunged on him before he could finish tying the knots. This made D'Angelo shoot at the husband in front of his wife and then shot her in back execution style. Couple died that night. Neighbors did hear few shots, but because it was around New Year's time, they didn't think much of it. D'Angelo fled the scene. Adidas running shoe prints were found in the couple's backyard as well as in the backyard of the adjacent empty condo. March 13, 1980, Charlene and Layman Smith were burgeoned to death with a firewood log in their bed. There were blood splatters on the wall. Charlene was raped before being killed. The couple's body was covered with the bed spread. Charlene was Lehman's second wife. On morning of March 16, three days after the murder, Lehman's 12-year-old son from ex-wife came to Modi Lawn. He noticed newspapers were accumulating in the front door. The door was unlocked and no one answered. Son went into the master bedroom to check. There he saw two people lying on the bed under the sheets. At first he felt hesitant, but he also felt something strange. He pulled the sheet halfway and saw his father's face smeared in blood. He called the authorities. On August 19, 1980, Keith and Patrice Harrington, living in Dana Point, who had been married for just three months, were found brutally and bulging to death in their home inside an Orange County gated community. Patrice has also been raped. On August 21, 1980, Keith's father, Roger, was invited over for dinner by his daughter-in-law, Patrice. When Roger reached the residence, he found the front door locked. When no one answered the door, he reached for the spare key kept over the door. The house was silent, dead silent. There were no answers to his hello, so he checked the garage. Their cars were still there. Passing through the kitchen, he noticed that there were groceries still in the bag on the counter. He went to the bedroom and saw a leg sticking out of the comforter. The comforter and pillow had been drenched in blood. He removed it and saw his son and daughter-in-law lying dead in their nightclothes. Next year in 1981, D'Angelo's first daughter was born. 
After months of inactivity, D'Angelo struck again. His victim was Manuela Vithun. She was a young, attractive woman with blonde hair. Born in Germany, she moved to America after she was married to an American of German descent named David Vithun. On night of February 6, 1981, Manuela was alone in her house while her husband was in hospital with viral infection. D'Angelo entered the house through the sliding door, opening it with the screwdriver. He jumped on the bed and raped her aggressively. She had bruising all over her body. This time, he had made an attempt to change his MO, modus operandi, to make it look more like a burglary gone wrong. He left the TV near the fence. He took the ligatures along and stole few less value things while leaving behind the expensive ones. He also left footprint near the back fence. July 27, 1981, D'Angelo again came back to Gulita where he started his murder spree. This time it was the house of Sherry Domingo and Gregory Sanchez. On night of 26 July at around 9.45 p.m. to 11 p.m., few neighbors saw a white male standing on the sidewalk right behind the couple's house. They said he was about 5 foot 10 inches tall blonde in his 20s and had a dog with him, a German Shepherd. D'Angelo was 35 at the time. He was in police and he was fit. He could run over fences. He walked around a lot. He would cycle a lot when prowling and stalking. So I think he looked in his 20s. In Veil of Night, D'Angelo entered couple's house. He shot Gregory and Sherry was aggressively raped and bulging to death. From July 27, 1981, after killing Sherry and Greg, till May 4, 1986, total of four years and nine months, James D'Angelo was inactive. During this time, in September 1981, his first daughter was born. He was enjoying being a father and focusing on family life as if nothing was wrong, living his double life as a family man and a rapist killer. Not much is known about what he did after he was fired from police department uh, or what he did for a living, but he did live in Sacramento. On May 4, 1986, four years, nine months after his last double murder, Joseph James D'Angelo struck for the last time before disappearing in the veil of darkness. He goes 440 miles south to Irvine City in Orange County to his last victim, 18-year-old Janelle Cruz. It was a Sunday night and she had a male friend over. Her family was away on vacation to Mexico. While they were sitting in Janelle's room, they heard a no noise of closing gate or garage door. They went to check and found nothing. This happened a couple of times. D'Angelo was watching them closely. At around 10.45 p.m., Janelle left to drop her friend or get something. At 11.15 p.m., she comes back according to the neighbor who heard her car. D'Angelo was perhaps waiting for them to sleep before he could attack because that was his MO. 
but when she left he still waited in or around her house maybe he was listening to their conversation and he knew she will come back that night janelle was killed in her house next day on monday 6th a real estate agent came by 5 pm as house was up for sale when she entered she found blood all over kitchen floor some cabinets and inside the front door appeared like someone tried to run away from the attacker when she went further in she found naked body of janelle lying on her bed her head was covered with blankets when she removed the blanket she saw janelle's head covered in blood she was aggressively bashed on her head which led to her death no murder weapons were ever found during this attack he was 40 years old probably he wasn't as athletic as he was same year 6 months after he killed janelle cruz his second daughter was born in 1989 his third daughter was born and he began working as mechanic at safe marts distribution center until his retirement in 2017 in 1991 his wife sharon left him but they were never divorced He continued living his life in his suburb house in Citrus Heights. These rapes and murders remained a mystery until his arrest on April 24, 2018, when he was cooking his roast in comforts and safety of his home. He used to call some of his victims after the attacks to make his presence felt. He wanted to maintain his power over them through fear. He made few calls to local police departments, taunting and mocking them for being incompetent. On March 18, 1977, he called police department and said, "I'm a hysteria rapist and I have my next victim already stalked and you guys can't catch me." December 2, 1977, another call was made to police department. You never gonna catch me. East area rapist, you dumb fuckers. I'm gonna fuck again tonight. Be careful. This call was recorded and same night his next victim was attacked. December 9, 1977. He called one of his victims and said, "Merry Christmas. It's me again." In 1991 a previous victim received a phone call possibly from him they spoke for 1 minute she could hear a woman and children in the background leading to speculation that he had a family on April 6 2001 one day after an article in Sacramento Bee linked the original night stalker and east area rapist a victim of the rapist received a call from him he asked Remember when we played? This was his last call. Strange, he had all these numbers written somewhere. I believe he has all the souvenirs that he has stolen. This is the story of James D'Angelo, who was known by many names for decades, but now we have a name. I hope he lives for another 20 years on cap- captive and understand how it feels to be confined. Tables have turned. He once bounded people with shoelaces and twines. Now he is in handcuffs and people are watching him like he enjoyed watching people. I hope you liked it. I did try my best to research and put in together as much details as I could in in this one episode. It goes 40 years back in time, so it was a tricky job, but it was also very interesting. 
so please give a like or a dislike i don't know maybe also subscribe that will be very encouraging thank you so much